0: Welcome to the Thinkers and Doers podcast where we hear from the leading thinkers and doers shaping the world around us. I am your host Luke Graham and today I have the privilege of speaking with Simon Kustenmacher, a German demographer based out of Melbourne, Australia. Simon and I have a few conversations during this hour, including the mental health crisis emerging out of people overly trying to find purpose in their work, as well as demographic challenges around the use of space and design of our cities, most notably aging populations, loneliness, and what this means for the way that we use spaces. I hope you enjoy. Simon Kustermacher, lovely to have you. Thank you for joining me. You are a demographer. Tell me, what does that entail? What is the demographics group and what led you into this world?
1: Well, as a demographer, all I do um, every day, all day long is look at big picture population data and lots of uh, other big picture data sets to understand how the world works, how different industries work and how the future might be am um, different from the present, simply because demographics is essentially the closest thing we have to a crystal ball. Because in quite a few countries um, around the world, forecasting the population is an outrageously precise act, largely migration um, nations, like uh, I'm operating in Australia and we dictate how many people we let into the country every year and we know very much um, how many babies we're going to make every year, how many of us will not make it to the next year. So we will be spot on there and then we can see the ups and downs of human populations we see and um, what phase of the life cycle we will see a big surge of population where we'll see a bit of a a slump Um so that is largely the study of demographics and then applying this type of knowledge with additional knowledge um, on any kind of issue that might be um, of interest um, my, my organization is called the demographics group and we do that so we are largely a speaking business so um, uh, we got essentially by now three speakers on demographics and we traveled the country uh, the globe to chat about demographics and we also do um specialized demographic um consulting to to government uh, to business um and that's not a career that young kids uh, dream of uh, t- to be honest so um, i did <laughs> <laughs> i want more kids like you then um, <laughs> I, I, it's something that you stumble into. Uh, m- my journey into demographics was very much an accident. Um, I had no idea what to do with my life uh, after high school, um, so I just studied um, geography uh, at university because I thought it was interesting, and I figured uh, <laughs> that'll do uh, for now. And um, after w- after uni, worked as a data analyst. Anybody can be a data analyst. And um, then... Slowly realized that you can do demographics for a living, and it blew me away that it is possible to just do the fun stuff, which I really appreciated. And um, yeah, I've been doing this in, in that form for a decade um, plus, and really enjoying thinking through uh, things from the big picture perspective.
0: And I've, uh, I've I've been following your work for quite a few years now because uh, I was following your business partner since since very early in my career, yeah. even before my career. Um, he's got quite a big reputation, uh, Bernard Salt. Um, the two of you, I believe, met um, in a in a prior world of yours. Is that right? And uh, and you kicked off together what back in twenty seventeen or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, so in, in twenty seventeen we started our we started the demographics group together. Before that, I started working um, for KPMG Demographics, uh, that mm-hmm. was headed uh, by Bernard Salt, and um, and yeah, I, I got that role back in the day uh, again by. Uh, pure accident uh, since I just saw that demographics, uh, KPG demographics existed and applied for a, a, a job that was advertised there and uh, Bernard interviewed me and said afterwards, why the hell are you applying for this job? This is a part admin role. Like, you're not an admin guy. I was like, oh, I don't care. I know, it's just uh, I just want to do demographics. That's that's uh, what I'm what I'm after. And he said, he called me a day afterwards and said, like, I'm not getting that job, but I'm you know, I create another job for you. And so then I started working um, with Bernard there and we took uh, we took on a new shape uh, after leaving
0: KPMG. You know what? Um, that's a lovely little segue. Uh, that is something that I was not, obviously not aware of. But um, but speaking of jobs being created, that that is naturally the dream. Um, that's generally what I try to do in my career as well. If I see a job description, you know, come in and say, oh, look, you know, this isn't quite exactly me, but if I tinker here and tinker there and... You know, then, uh, then things line up pretty well. So a lot of your work, a lot of your thought leadership, um, a lot of the speaking you do, a lot of the writing you do is around the future of work. Naturally, over the last, say, what, three, three and a half, four years, that's, um, that's increased in prevalence, that conversation. Um, it's become a more fierce conversation. We've touched on it in a, a few previous episodes on the thinkers and doers in the past from, from other experts, um, h- how have you seen that sort of future of work conversation transform over your time in demographics? Um, how has it changed? You know, people asking you around, speaking gigs, writing gigs, all those sorts of things.
1: Well, I guess um, with young people, the obsession with work having to be meaningful has been increasing quite steadily over the last couple of decades, and I think this is not so much a generational phenomenon uh, as a creeping um, change over time. Um, and I would say it has to do with the meaning of life the meaning uh, in your life needs to come from somewhere and uh, bit by bit religion doesn't fill that hole anymore because we in many western nations increasingly become a bunch of atheists so that falls away as a source of meaning Um, that wasn't a problem uh, for the baby boomer generation where we also had lots of atheists um, but they at least started families very early and so they would always have claimed that the meaning of life comes from family. And so we now find ourselves um, in, a, in a time of the life cycle uh, in history where we start families in the mid to late 30s. That means for about 20 years after leaving high school, the meaning of life must come from somewhere. And that's why the millennials were labeled as a cohort that is um, obsessed with um with experiences, that shuns, uh, that forgoes materialistic goods in order to experience the world, to travel, to do yoga, to go on festivals, and of course also yeah. to find meaning in work. And that is probably um, a problematic bit if you think about it. I'm quite critical about um, the obsession with meaningful work, particularly the narratives that, that all those TED talks and the like push on you that... Um, They don't say it just like that, but they very much imply that if your job doesn't provide meaning in your life, it is a failure. You're not doing the right job. You should position yourself in a job that provides meaning. Um, I'm I'm a numbers guy. I'm arguing that in a country like Australia, where we have 14 million jobs, how likely is it that we align 14 million jobs with 14 million individual passions and desires? It is an absolute um, uh, unrealistic beauty ideal. I, I tend to call this um, work image issues. That is the the office equivalent to body image issues where we look at these sexy models and bodybuilders on Instagram. And then we look at ourselves and we go, <laughs> could be better. Um, and we <laughs> literally have millions upon millions of young people on antidepressants. Um, yeah. We, all of those um, mental health surveys show that people, particularly young women, um, in their early 20s have have insane rates of um, chronic mental health issues. Um, that is because they can't win. It is an unrealistic sense of um, what your job should provide you with, particularly in your early years. If you think about this straight out of uni, by definition you are young and unexperienced. Um, even though you are the most um, idealistic that you will ever be in your life. Um, That means you are desperate for your job to be spot on, to do the right thing, to change the world. But really, you'll start at the absolute bottom of the the, the pyramid, bottom of the hierarchy. And um, if you want a meaningful job, which is by far uh, not guaranteed that you will ever reach it, it is only something that you navigate into bit by bit throughout your career. Huh? Let's call it a decade uh, that you need to navigate proactively, need to navigate yourself into this. Um, easier said than done. Let's say you finished your uni in your, in your mid-20s. That means by your mid-30s you have a fighting chance to be in a job that actually matches your passions and desires. Pretty difficult on top of this a bit of a macroeconomic shift of things and things get more complicated um so i don't want to be the 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 big demographic party pooper here um but i want to um i want to create realistic expectations of what work can be yes it is better to have a job that perfectly aligns with your passions with your desires absolutely but don't um, rely on it to make sure that you call your life a success
0: I'm not sure if you're a um, a big reader of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, are you? Um, I'm, I'm German, so I did my I did my fair bit of Nietzsche. Yes, in my uni, absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say um, I, I didn't want to draw that connection until you did, uh, because I, I haven't read every Australian writer. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but um, <clears throat> but although I have read Bernard Salt*. <laughs> But, uh, but it's 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 very interesting the point you make there around purpose and uh, and around generations and, and and those sorts of things. You know, the, I, I believe I haven't read this of his, but uh, I believe he's often cited as as one of the, um, the philosophers who foresaw this. You know, death of God and there and and adjacent sort of death of meaning and the emergence of you know a lot of radical politics, which we then saw in the 20th century and and now what we're seeing now. Um, around, you know, this, this point that you've made around finding purpose in your work. And, you know, uh, w- when I see some of your work in this area, it reminds me of a quote um, that I remember coming across a little while ago that I try to remind myself of um, every now and then um, when, I, when I indulge a lot uh, on this side in my career, which is um, that you should never spoil a good uh, hobby by getting paid for it, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and and there is something like this and i've, I've done the same in my personal um sporting uh, career in uh, if, if you will playing playing futsal um in in australia up to a up to a level i absolutely love it it's a it's a wonderful sport and pastime but i played it up to a level um where it was stressful where it mm. became not fun anymore and i i literally um you know forced myself into not enjoying the sport anymore which is a a big shame um if if you will so you, you can do this by putting too much stress on it by losing the joy of things um that's that's something that you need to be aware of but of course life goes through um through stages and of course you need hobbies you need meaning in your life um this is something that we can say quite easily in an environment where we're not absolutely um suffering from cost of living uh, because if you think about what hobbies, uh, for example, mean, it means that you have some sort of spare time to indulge in a pastime, Yeah, whether this is an exercise, gardening, carpentry, whatever it is, doesn't matter, usually it requires a bit of time. If the cost of living is an absolute catastrophe, um, you need all the money that you can get. People work longer. They are more stressed. They just uh, don't have the mental capacity, if they're constantly under stress, um, to do something like, let's say, gardening. Even though that might take stress off them, um, it's just too hard of a hurdle to do. So it is easier to have a, a bottle of wine and watch some Netflix. That is actually easier. It is not helping. It is probably making things worse. Um... But that's as a society when you look at it's very much a global phenomenon um, that cost of living is is rising, housing, a basic core necessity of life is in in many nations becoming forbiddingly expensive, um, that creates stress. That that eats away from the spare time Um, and so I always point to the UK, Australia, the US are prime examples of we need to fix housing first. So when I'm writing my weekly and my monthly columns um, about whatever it is in the world of demographics that I'm writing about, sooner or later, and it really annoys me, there is always a housing angle because it is such a cornerstone issue that we haven't fixed it takes up so much finances these finances that we throw into the property market um, way and above beyond uh, the whole idea that we need some sort of um, nice box to live in yes this needs to be financed but there's so much speculation in the market um, that creates empty calories Um, in in terms of wealth creation because what do I care if my house is a million dollars or a million and a half dollars whatever it is doesn't matter the box is the same but the half a million dollar with interest rates probably closer to eight hundred thousand dollars that I'm spending on the house rather than on something else that is not productive if I was to invest this wealth either in just consumption uh, it is more economically productive if I'm investing it in otherwise let's say into stock into the stock market that is economically more productive because it creates uh, new wealth new businesses new jobs that is much more interesting uh, than the empty calories of the housing market
0: yeah so that's a really good argument um and uh, and I appreciate you making that because you know I, we did some research um uh, what about six months or so ago around this concept of idiosyncratic risk as well and now that that's you know that's a uh, academic term or a financial term that a lot of listeners um won't automatically um, know you know uh, the definition of but uh, essentially the idea of idiosyncratic risk is um that if your property is say as, as Simon's just said now you know a million dollars or a million pound depending on what market you're in uh, and you're throwing every last cent you have into your home then you are completely overexposed to the performance of that yeah. asset solely, like alone. So if that asset performs poorly, you're in trouble. You've got no portfolio diversification as well. It's, so yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah, and that's what
1: high property markets do by, by definition. They force you mm. to put not all of your X, but an awful lot of your X into a single basket. And mm. you you are exposed uh by definition and any investment in a house in that instance is an investment good as well is a risk uh nobody can guarantee you that the market um delivers growth um endlessly even though we of course try to do this particularly in markets with really high home ownership rates um uh, the central banks uh, all government policy will be geared towards not popping the housing bubble because it creates so much pain and it makes sure that you're not get re-elected, um, so uh, that will be fought uh, tooth and nail. Yeah, mm,
0: yeah for sure. You, you, what's the, there's that old saying: no one ever got fired for uh, contracting IBM, um, and no politician ever lost office by making house prices increase. Yeah, and it's
1: it's it's as simple as that. If two thirds of the population, that's roughly the Australian figure, um, mm. is living in a house that they own. Well, that's the important figure.
0: Who cares about the rest? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So on on the future of work then, um, if if we if we grasp back on that topic, there's there's one more thing that I've seen you talking about, which I wanted to hear from you on. Um we've we've heard from previous guests, as I mentioned before. Um, but I but I want your take on this as well. You know, I I wanna sort of aggregate some of these takes from, you know, from the demographics community through yourself. Um, You know, we've looked at performance, psychology and the like as well. Um, You know, body language experts on this topic. Uh, is uh, if, if you look at the the conversation around the nature of human-to-human work um, or what you and I are doing right now, which is having a, a virtual conversation across the planet, me in your continent of birth and you in my continent of birth. <laughs> so we've swapped over. And uh, I believe you're a parent. The grandparents uh, naturally don't get too much um, exposure then to uh, to the little one, which I'm sure they've, uh, they've given you trouble for. Um, there are more and more of us in the world doing this, the expat families. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and a part of that, some of them are working in person, some of them are working hybrid, some working remote, some people are working locally in their country of origin and doing this, all sorts of bits and bobs um, with the nature of hybrid work. How has that debate sort of progressed over your time looking at this topic? And where, where are some of the key sort of myths Around hybrid work that you see that you like to debunk when you're talking to your clients about it,
1: um, the the stock standard discussion that I find a bit too simplistic is um, the evil bosses want the workers um, back in the office so that they can crack the whip, and the lazy workers want to stay uh, at home in their in their tracksuit pants and not do any work. That's mm-hmm. that's simplistic, and I'm always saying. Um, and we're seeing this very much in the settlement patterns uh, in, in Australia, in the US as well, is that um, during the pandemic, um, everybody, or heaps of knowledge workers that could work from home were forced to work from home, at least uh, sometimes. So that means they um, they stayed there and then they realized, wait a second, I'm still paying a premium to live close to my office tower that I'm not going to anymore. So how about I move to the urban fringe? How about I move to a bit more of a regional town, and where the housing uh, is more affordable? And I then um, work mostly remotely, but I travel into the office. I commute into the office once or twice a week, and then people were willing to take a longer commute onto themselves because in their head they're somehow calculating that um, if I only go half the time, my commute can be twice as long, and. In Australia, we see a magical two-hour commuting radius that is drawn around cities. Growth is happening within this two-hour radius, not outside of that. Um, That will kind of play itself out. In a sense, we, we, we open up the areas that people are willing to move to, but that very much takes the hybrid approach into um, reality. Yes, there are remote workers, but the remote work will continue to be a bit of a niche phenomenon. The hybrid model will be by far um, the norm. That then leaves uh, the discussion, well, should you go to the office one day per week? Should you go four days? Maybe I can't force my staff back five days a week. And I wrote a column, a um, bit tongue in cheek, um, putting myself into the shoes of a very cynical boss. Who wants all of their staff back into the office and they usually have three arguments that they make the first say productivity is higher in the office and then they say um, the team culture is better when we're in the office the, the sense of loyalty to the organization to your fellow staff members and then they say um, learning um, education training is better when you're in the office so if we unpack those we'll start with productivity No proof whatsoever that you're more productive in the office, period. Nada. Absolutely nothing. Um, Measuring productivity is an absolute nightmare because it is so difficult to untangle with the general macro environment that there's in. If, as a boss, you had a measurement for your particular industry, that's cool, but show me the numbers. I doubt it very much. The best proxy that we have is we know that people that work from home work longer hours. So that must count for something. It's not a perfect um, measure for productivity, but it at least suggests uh, that you might even be doing uh, more productive work at home. Um, So I don't let the uh, productivity argument fly, to be honest. Um, The other issue is about loyalty and loyalty to the organization. And red research absolutely blew me away when I first uh, saw it. your sense of loyalty, your sense of belonging in the organization is the same whether you go to the office one day per week or five days per week. I couldn't believe it because it's such a big difference. But then I remember, we spoke about my futsal days earlier, um, mm-hmm. that I played futsal for many years once a week. I, I saw those guys and I considered them my dear close friends. Then I figured... Wait a second, that is probably a reasonably good uh, metaphor, good comparison. So, for a team social cohesion, one day per week, call it two days if you really want to make sure, is enough. But the most important reason to go um, into or to force your staff into the office at least partially has to do with training and education. Um I'm making up those numbers now but if you if you imagine your stereotypical um twenty two year old um grad um they'll go to the office and they'll have a buddy assigned to them they'll they'll sit in an in an open space office every day a couple of new people next to them they'll ask many questions to people they'll hear many random stories, maybe they ask fifty questions per day, whatever it is um if they are working from home, they'll still ask questions because they'll have a buddy assigned to them. They'll have a manager. They'll have a boss. They'll talk to them occasionally, um, but let's say they ask half as many questions, half as many questions, and they'll definitely heep, hear heaps fewer um, war stories uh, from mm. the older workers that that have all those lessons um, hidden in them. Um, Maybe some of it, those are good not to hear. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but it is still organizational knowledge that is not being passed on. Mm. Um, mm. And that means, and that is really bad news for all middle managers, um, you need to purposefully create the kind of uh, incidental learning that usually occurs. That means you need to manage, you need to create more regular um Training days. You need to make sure that the super nerd in the team teaches all the younger staff once a month, um, you know, an Excel 101 or whatever your organization needs um, there. You need to create those things um, purposefully. And you need to probably align uh, when all those people go into the office uh, so that those two days that you all spend in the office, um, actually everybody is doing the same days. It's, it's not half as useful if people are split across the whole week willy-nilly. So you want to coordinate this much more. Thank God there's plenty of software, calendar management stuff uh, that allows you to do this. But middle managers, sorry to tell you, um, it is going to be more annoying um, to manage that. And on top of that, so once you, as a boss, you, you kind of align those three things. Productivity, um, loyalty and training. Then you also need to have a very honest Look at yourself, it's not an easy task, and say, Are those three arguments really why I want people back in the office? Or is it more of a power thing? Is it something that I figured, hey, I worked 30 years really hard to get to the top of the food chain, and now I'm just sitting by myself in the office? Stupid, I hate it. Um, is it that? Is it something that uh, maybe you do, just, uh, from a personality perspective, you don't like working from home, and you then force your dislike of working from home on the rest of your staff? These are difficult questions that you need to uh, sort out with yourself as a boss, and then we can um, think about working from home um, in a more, um, yeah, in a more nuanced way. And so in this debate, lazy workers. Evil bosses, I don't take the side of either. I take the side of work. And if you think about, um, you know, the big, huge impact that AI has on the world of work. AI will not make jobs obsolete. Absolutely not. AI will, however, um, speed up and probably make obsolete quite a few tasks that exist and if you honestly look at your probably last two or three work days you probably did 70 to two different tasks whatever it is it's some sort of number you do heaps of tasks and you wouldn't be all that um depressed sad if a friendly robot or an ai took over 12 13 20 of those tasks um the bad news is however that and this is the case for knowledge workers in particular um if AI sped up twenty percent of your of your tasks, um, you wouldn't leave the office at three p.m. Um, because to misquote Jurassic Park, work finds a day. Uh, work finds a way to fill your day.
0: Yeah, and nature abhors and a vacuum. It,
1: it, exactly, it, it, it eats. That's absolutely right. It it, it eats that up. Um, mm. But what your day will look like is vastly different in the AI future because the tasks that are being gobbled up. They are technical, repetitive. This is when you move boxes in a PowerPoint, when you program, when you do something in Excel, when replying to emails might be faster. All of those things, that get sped up. What AI will not touch at scale, uh, anytime soon at least, is interpersonal work, is interpersonal um, interpretation of data, conversations with other humans. That will be very much, um, that will take up a bigger share of, uh, of, of your day, those interpersonal tasks. That means AI in a very, very um, counterintuitive uh, notion will make the world of work more human, more interpersonal. That's quite nice. And it also is an answer to all those people that have billions of dollars invested into the big Fed office towers in the CVDs that are wondering whether they should just board them up and let nature take over. Uh, no, the <laughs> CVDs will be just fine, but not right now and not in the immediate future. In the long term, the CVDs will be fine because ideally we'd split our work weeks in terms of going to the office and working from home into two. We do the interpersonal tasks in the office, we do the quiet, thinking, repetitive tasks that are still with us, and we do those at home. And again, it needs a bit of alignment, middle management plays a role here to make sure that we align all those people that benefit from working together, that they come to the office at the same time and if you and it will not be that extreme but if you imagined a CBD where every organization acts this way it would make sure um, that all the offices would look differently we wouldn't we would completely let go of hot desks of cubicles hopefully we let go a decade ago anyways um, and it is a much more communal uh, even rowdy raucous CBD where people go to meet with other people lots more whiteboards interactive screens um, People would uh, hang out much more in cafes because they meet uh, other potential clients, old colleagues and so forth. It'd be a wonderful CBD, a CBD that is actually more attractive than the um, 2019 pre-pandemic um, CVD. Um, the extreme narrative that I'm describing here is, of course, a bit of a pipe dream. But we are moving into that direction. That's the direction that's working and um, that's a better future. And it's up for organizations to decide, hey, How much can we stir our direction towards that? That would be better. And that's when we side uh, with the nature of work. What work wants rather than what workers want, what bosses want. That is best uh, for work and we always talk about earning the commute now. That would earn the commute because you actually do something in the office that is best done in person. And that would be a cool, uh, wonderful uh, world of work, I would argue.
0: Yeah, and and what you're saying there around like how how a city then a city centre CBD uh, which stands for Central Business District for those Americans in the audience uh, downtown, what you guys <laughs> might call downtown, uh, or for Londoners the square mile um, plus usually um, uh, also Canary Wharf falls into that category. Um, so so cities CBDs you know they they, they can get a bad rap um, you know especially from the urban designers. And lots of other people on this on this vacuous, empty, massive blocks of steel and concrete and glass, right? Um, but but then there's the argument around the city being a space of culture, right? Of you say going to London's West End, of going, you know, to um, I'm not sure what the equivalent is in New York. Sorry, New York friends. Um, but go, but going to those cultural hubs like in these major cities. You know, Melbourne's famous. I believe you're based out of Melbourne, right? Yeah, I'm in Melbourne. Um, yeah yeah so you know Melbourne you know one of the world's most livable cities um, culture site is a big part of that you've got the MCG just outside of the city um, you know you have just to the east of the city as well you have like Fitzroy and and these sorts of places um, Collingwood you know these trendy hipster sorts of places um, how then like that, that seems quite well aligned what you're saying with cities being reimagined back to perhaps their more adaptive, um, state as say a, a center of culture a meeting place of people to exchange ideas and entertain one another and and do that magic that makes us human, say yeah also
1: yeah so when we think about the changing nature of cities and this is when we move into big picture demographic data as well um, mm. the city is uh, of course the centralized uh, fun lots of functions in a city need to be centralized This is you throw all your arts, uh, all your sporting structures, your big, uh, you know, um, uh, basketball stadiums, whatever it is in the center of town. That makes perfect sense. And so people from all over town, they go uh, into the CVD to do those very special events. Um, And of course, lots of people live in it near the CVD. They're usually people before uh, the family formation stage of the life cycle. So people under the age of 40 um almost exclusively dominate um the inner suburbs um and once they have families they move to suburbia they move to the urban fringes uh, of the cities that is the case in um in most western uh, cities more or less um, to speak, and at the moment of over the last decade, when all of the millennials were before the family formation stage, that was another heyday for the city centre because the biggest generation that ever lived the the millennials uh, in, in at least in the u s and in in uh, because of the migrant nation in in canada the u s new zealand um, australia, there was very much the largest generation that ever lived, the millennials. They all were in the renting stage of the life cycle, in the pre-family stage. They wanted to live in the inner city. So that, was, that, that meant the city was super vibrant and lots of activities. And now, um, even without the pandemic, with all these things from working from home that we discussed, um, we would have seen a bit of a lull in the inner city because millennials become suburbanites. Uh, they move away. And the next court that moves into the CBD for now is smaller so there was always going to be a bit of a lag of of, of activity there. Um, Migration nations and cities that grow, um, they fill this up because they get population growth from the rest of the country. Germany, for example, where I'm from, is is a stagnant uh, population uh, on a national level. But my hometown of Munich is is growing um, rapidly. Um, so all the young people go to Munich and Berlin, uh, largely in, in in Germany. And so those areas are just doing fine because they get enough young lifeblood blood to keep those inner city areas nice and active. Um, other cities don't have that now. They, they have a lag, and and that creates demographic dynamics and uh, when we look at global population data and um, we see that this trend will um, overall continue because we'll see peak humanity in the 2060s we will not will not grow bigger than we are in in about 40 years time so if mm. you are 40 you'll probably see peak humanity if you're 40 and under which I find quite astonishing as a 40-year-old. Um, <laughs> so that's just a, a nice bit of trivia. But that is only the human population, the, the absolute human population. If you look at people that we call um, of migration age, those, those young active people, 18 to 39 years of age, they'll start stagnating on a, human, on a global level in about 10 years. Um, so we're running out of young people very, very soon. Uh, And that means that the the standard forces that created um, all those wonderful new innovations, that's a smaller cohort now. That's difficult. Mm. And also, um, fewer young people means that uh, capital will change. Because uh, if you think about this, the older you get, uh, the less you are supposed to invest into risky stuff. You are supposed to invest into boring, stable stuff. As we as a world get older who is investing into risky stuff yes we live a bit longer and and there is more appetite the baby boomers that are growing old now they are more um, willing to take risks in their investment even in old age but they are still um, de-risking their portfolios um so ultimately we need to think about where is innovation coming from in the in in the future so i'm one of the people that very much uh, hopes uh, that AI can make us more productive, because demographically speaking, um, we are running out of the hyperproductive workers very soon, globally speaking. So, um, you know, if we get a bit of a leg up uh, from friendly computers, I'm, uh, I'm all for it.
0: Let me then ask you about something that came up for me recently, um, which I found quite interesting, because when we talk about this inverted population pyramid, you know, aging population, these sorts of things around the world, oftentimes people will not just talk about what you said just now around, okay, well, the nature of investment um, and, and the finance the financial sector will shift. But we've also got like the use of space will shift going back to our conversation around cities right so you know it may be you know less likely to see an 80 year old out in um, the middle of soho you know at three o'clock in the morning on a wednesday night or a friday night or something like that as you would an 18 year old or a 22 year old or something right so naturally your behaviors differ um, your accessibility requirements change and uh, and the nature of housing changes now one of the saddest um, functions I think of, of the West is the way that we sort of um, segregate like older members of our community into aged care and things like that. You know, um, you, nat- naturally the, the design of our cities is, is kind of structured in that way. But by virtue, I've heard, you know, in the real estate sector, a lot of conversations around, well, we've got to build X amount of aged care facilities in this period of time in order to meet the demand that's going to come from this, not just aging population, but population that's also living longer. So really pushing that average up in, in two ways. Now, what what intrigues me is because to your point, then the younger cohorts are coming through, which have, have fewer numbers, right? We reached the peak in the 2060s. Which says to me that okay, it might not be our problem. You and I are going to be old, and, and uh, our consciousness downloaded to a computer by this time. But uh, at some point, we're going to end up with an oversupply of aged care housing or aged housing in in however whichever way you want to frame it, um, designed for today's style of communities, right? Uh, with today's design design considerations. There's going to be a massive oversupply of that unless there's some kind of adaptive element applied to that, some sort of, okay, well, this can be reused when it's no longer needed in 30 or 40 years' time to this type of application or that type of application. Um, Or maybe we're rethinking urban design entirely to account for the fact that ninety year olds no longer go into a house um you know miles away from from town now they're integrated with the rest of town and all those sorts of things like has has any of this kind of come up for you and, uh, and uh, what plenty, that look like? plenty 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 yeah. of
1: issues um so uh, remember that um, and I have the Australian figures in mind, but very much mm-hmm. the same trend is true for the whole Western world. If we talk about places like uh Italy or Greece, they are decades ahead um so in australia for example we're doubling the population 85 plus in 12 years from right. 500,000 to a million people 85 is a is a lovely statistical age to use because in the western world half of us um doesn't make it to 85 um the remaining half that makes it past 85 half of that cohort needs care needs um that's huge so it, that that's massive um, and when we think about um, old people um, when we talk about aged care facilities, they only get pushed in there um, if it's absolutely needed if the family house becomes a physical hazard to manage usually um, in their 70s everything hurts all joints hurts and whatever but you're still mobile you're still you're still with it so to speak um, so mm-hmm. all, all is well but at some stage all your functions um, decline and what do you do in order to prolong your independence? Because uh, here people uh, all over, uh, they say stuff like, I want to be carried out of my family house. That seems to be the, the, the main goal in life. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. It's not Not when you're 40. <laughs> no. My, uh, absolutely. Because you don't become a homeowner until you're 40. Uh, and so... <laughs> True. So the whole idea is you really obsess about staying, living independently in your own house. Mm. Um, and, you know, being carried out is, of course, the ultimate downsizing into the little box. Uh, but more than anything, this is a result of this, um, this very individ- individual, individualistically minded baby boomer cohort that is in 10 years time reaching the 85 plus care level um, cohort. They will want to live independently. That is, the main, that is the name of the game. So we need to rethink the way retirement looks like. If you think about just the physical look of a 75 year old today and 30 years ago, they are unrecognizable. People 30 uh, years on, ago yeah. at 75 looked
0: like old ancient people. These yeah. are hip 75 year olds. <laughs> so, uh, so Wimbledon finished yesterday <laughs> um, that will date this podcast. I know it's a cardinal rule not to do. But um, Wimbledon finished yesterday, and and they showed Brad Pitt was three years older than the combined age of the two competitors in the male singles, wow, <laughs> right? And uh, and and that made him, I think, something like is he fifty nine or sixty nine or something like that? Something got to be fifty. It he can't be sixty nine. And he looks younger than me. <laughs> so I take your point. I definitely take your no, point. It, on we
1: age differently, we stay yeah. active and fitter for longer. We dress differently in old age, and we view ourselves uh differently we, we do not give ourselves permission to be old um in 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 retirement living um you know that retirement living villages is 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 a thing. this is before aged care. this is when you have aged. Yeah communities um Mm -hmm. there might be a bit of medical service on hand as well but it is it's more independent living um these communities um have they fix quite a few problems um because you want to remember that uh, in most couples um uh, we're talking about straight couples here um the the man is three years older than the wife and has three years longer life expect uh, three years shorter life expectancy so there's a six year gap where the woman is likely statistically speaking to be a widow um loneliness in old age is an outrageous pandemic so to speak and we know that if you live in your family house in a car dependent suburb you're all but guaranteed to be miserable in 10 years time if you're 75 today it is Mm -hmm. it is brutal so we can map this across cities we can map human uh, mental despair in old age and that's that's brutal and in in, in one way their go the goal still remains to live in those um in the independent it's my family house I, I i know my way around here but that's that's painful and from a mental health perspective those retirement uh, living facilities have something going for them because it makes sure that you are not there alone there is a, you have a community aspect to it so i see that as a as a potential um solution i'm seeing probably um more and more very proactive things emerge in, in baby boomers uh, getting older. Something like um, it, it's not quite as as chaotic as um, shared living in in your university days, uh, but co-housing will be will be a thing where you have two, three, four couples buying a massive property and essentially providing support mentally to each other, and then you'll be fine if just bit by bit uh, a partner or two die die off and if somebody gets uh you know has care needs uh, you can if you're rich enough you can buy care into the into this arrangement these are things that will be done more and more and we'll do them at scale we we'll do them globally um so here's free financial advice <laughs> what do I care? um <laughs> a, any anything that touches that sector that allows people to live independently for longer um will make a big um will make a big buck and it is also providing necessary relief on society because we just don't have even in a migration nation like australia we just don't have enough workers to look after our Mm. old cohort in 10 years time so any technological advantage that makes sure that you live independently without needing care um, this can be built environment things um, or technological wearable technology um, that goes a long way in, in making a country operate better think about simple stuff like an Apple Watch that surely will be better and more complex in 10 years time um, if you if you throw one of those Apple Watches onto an elderly user they are a fall gets detected period it's quite simplistic mm. whatever it is and so you know that ah this is the biggest risk that you might be seeing with your dad your grand your your, your grandma whatever it is and you go cool so you, we can, you can live a bit longer independently even if this is only half a year a year for that particular person if you throw this at a at a national level um you win massively for an investment of whatever 700 bucks i have no idea what an apple watch costs (laughs) Uh, i I, I got my
0: garmin watch with uh with um points so uh uh, uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) whatever it is Uh, but so this is the kind of technology that we're talking about that has a real impact on a population level yes you do it's a bit of a tech uh, uh, game for the individuals but that's that's with us They'll be with us um, wherever we go, and yep, if you play in this field, you'll have a have a marvelous decade um, ahead.
0: So, so let me let me test you on on this thought then, right? Because I, I, I'm with you, and and you know I'm as you know i say this a lot on this podcast um i guess it just comes up naturally in in some ways that you know myself and and many other people i've i've come across in my travels are, are hyper extroverted i i would probably classify my grandmother this way as well right she's um yeah. she had the misfortune of uh my grandfather her husband um serving in hiroshima uh in the aftermath of the bomb um, and he died with cancer riddled all through his body yeah. just as he retired. I think he was about 60 or something like that from memory. I was about a year old. So she spent yeah. my life, you know, my life um, my grandmother has spent um, as a widow. So much more than that 60-year gap you're referring to. She's maybe an outlier there. And the tough thing is that, you know, she likes being around people. She loves being around people. Um, and so a lot of these interventions you're talking about would be great. You know, um, she, she said to my parents the other day, which which broke my heart because I'd love the privilege and opportunity to be able to do this. She said to my parents, oh, you know, I'd love to go and um, visit Luke and Luke and Hannah for a few weeks uh, over in London, you know, um, but but that can't happen. But things like because, you know, she just can't fly. She's, she's now in her 90s, but. Things that probably can happen when it comes to this tech, when it comes to solving some of these challenges, you know, one that you didn't touch on that has maybe ethical challenges, perhaps if you frame it in this way, is things like virtual and augmented reality, higher fidelity interactions that compete with what you and I are doing right now, right? I wonder if that has a role to play and if that kind of then merges into a little bit of a dystopian sort of image of of interpersonal interactions then being virtual more so than real and you know it's a bit of a box to unpack but what do you ensure when you hear that um i'm not all that panicked about it um
1: t- to be honest uh, especially not in the short term so uh, people um take the technologies that they're comfortable with into old age um, I see that I'm I'm only 40, if you will, and I find myself more and more reluctant if there's yet another social media platform or whatever uh, to, to fully embrace it. Um, and that only gets uh, more intense, uh, the tech reluctancy if you, if you get old. Um, so the, the tech people, uh, the core that would be really embracing um, virtual reality, you know, holograms, whatever it is, in old age, that would be the people that grow up with that being normal. So that is an issue of... Um, you and I, we are much too old to think that that's normal. Um, yeah. you know, if you have teens when that's coming up now, let's say in 10 years' time, the teens, so the 8-year-olds of today, they'll probably think that no, that's that's to be normal. That's still a fair bit out, um, if, if it comes at all. And overall, so in, in, in forecasting, um, there's a popular mistake that we make, is that we look at a single piece of technology And then we think that this is completely changing the world. And it is not. Um, If you think about the internet, which really was clearly a big cut in we do, we work differently, lots of things work differently. Overall, the human life now, uh, compared to maybe 30 years ago when the internet was not a thing for the masses. You know, a couple of super computer nerds had the internet, but not at at scale. World in 1993... Looked much the same than it is than it does now. It's not that different. Yes, there were no mobile phones, oh man bricks, but you know, only a few people had them. But overall, people went to work, had relationships, followed sports. Um, yes, a couple of details changed. We spent less time outside, probably as kids and so forth. Uh, but overall, it's not that shockingly different. And even if you go back a hundred years, yeah, it's not that different. And you, you can play this game on and on. And you see, you, you, you add technologies bit by bit um, on there. That's like, probably won't be making that much of a difference. And we, we tend to go back to the importance of human face-to-face interaction. That's, we started with this working from home discussion. And one of the reasons um, is why this is so important that we say we need to come back to the office in some degree is because we, we, we have a deep understanding that we do need to connect um with with one another there's a different connection uh when you talk to somebody face to face than you do online um yeah uh, to to a certain degree of course um the this online thing also humanized um your workers because you're seeing beyond the worker you it, as simplistic as it sounds but you by just looking into uh, people's studies and and bedrooms you realized. They are actually a human, rather than just the the worker bee in the suit uh, that you that you see every day, and that, that that was nice. And ideally, we have both of those things. We, we understand that people play across a spectrum, and yeah, I'm I'm not too fast. I'm I'm always in in favor of embracing technology, and I, I very much realize that any new technology at the start will be. Um, misused or not not misused but will be overused and, and used in a, in a in a wrong way we are now making heaps of mistakes with something like social media 15 mm-hmm. year old technology that's to be expected and um, we'll iron this out uh, lots of the privacy concerns uh, that we have with social media platforms with central uh, with uh, you know centrally owned uh, data and so forth uh, that is being fixed literally right now as we speak with the And with all those alternative uh, technology approaches towards social media, we're fixing this. Only 15 years after the initial social media revolution. That is pretty quick. Um, In the meantime, we screw up. In the meantime, we we, uh, unleash mental health uh, monsters like Instagram (laughs) on people. Um, it's a nightmare, it shouldn't exist, kill it tomorrow, Uh, kill it today, Instagram, it's doing no good whatsoever, kill it, Uh, only negative consequences, shouldn't exist, period, Um, it's like smoking, I'm quite radical about this, even though I am, of course, on Instagram, (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, but we learn this bit by bit, and we'll adjust, and we we, will educate um, people, young people as well, so when we have all this chat about old people get hooked on, on technology, they can't separate the real from the fake and our young folks, they will never ever talk to people in, in 3d or or well in, in person. Um, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't see it. I see ultimately that the human desire to be a master of your own, um, of your own life wins out and we become more and more knowledgeable about, um, how certain technologies, um, impact us and ultimately we'll we'll fix it i i do really believe in 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 the in the good and in the knowledgeable end of human uh civilization because we're seeing what doesn't work now we're seeing fake news we're seeing spread we're seeing um bots discussing nonsense all of this will be um will be somehow fixed in the long run
0: well, Simon, that was that was very philosophical, and therefore a fantastic way to put a punctuation mark on this episode. <laughs> I think so. Did you have any final thoughts, or did, were you happy leaving it there? That's uh, that was. No, sort of... uh,
1: plenty, plenty of uh, very uh, broad and fun uh, discussion topics here. I massively enjoyed the chat.
0: Yes, me too. It's, um, I've had a couple of these where I, I think to myself, this could have easily turned into a four-hour conversation. So what that means <laughs> is that I'm going to volunteer you for a future episode, um, not too far a- into the future. Beautiful. Thank you, Simon. Uh, it's been a pleasure.